We are in Acts chapter 2, and, um, and so if you um, have a Bible, let me invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a paper Bible in one of the seats there in front of you, and um, Nathan usually calls out the page number in case you're having trouble finding it. I remember when I was a, uh, I grew up in a Catholic uh, home, and um, I didn't know the Bible very well at all. So by the time I became a Christian and I went to church, I didn't know how to find my way around the Bible at all. It seemed like by the time the pastor was halfway through his message, I finally found, oh, there he is, and then it was over. You know, so I, I missed the whole thing. So um, I'm stalling, so I'll give you time if you need it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Page 530 uh, is where we are if you have one of those gray um, Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Last week we covered the event of Pentecost, right? Pentecost uh, to the church is, is well known as the event uh, when after Jesus ascended, Ten days later, the Holy Spirit descended and fell upon the 120 disciples and the 12 um, apostles. Uh, so we talked about the event of Pentecost last week. Um, today, we cover the second half, which is um, the explanation of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the disciples, 120 people in, in and around the, the temple complex. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know there's the Wailing Wall. And uh, I happened to be there a few years ago, 2015. And we got there on Shabbat. And when we got there on that Friday evening, um, when Shabbat begins, there is a, a rushing of people running into this large, huge square along the, the, um, the Wailing Wall area where they can get as close to the temple as they can, close to the presence of God. That entire complex is built for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost on those disciples in that upper room area, they migrated out toward this temple complex. And there we find our passage for today when group, a group of thousands had gathered. We know that from the end of this passage, 3,000 people became Christians, gave their life to Jesus Christ at the end of that message. So there were thousands of people who gathered. They wanted to hear the explanation. Why are these Galilean people speaking in language? languages that we can all understand. So that was last week, the event of the Holy Spirit. Today is the explanation of Pentecost, the explanation. What does it mean? That's the question that we want to ask. What does Pentecost mean? What does the outpouring of the Holy Spirit mean for us and for them at that time? Peter spontaneously stood up before a crowd of thousands and gave an explanation. And his sermon could be outlined in four parts, answering the question, what does Pentecost mean? I'm going to give them to you right now, beforehand. Number one, Pentecost means that prophecy has been fulfilled. Right? It means that prophecy has been fulfilled. Joel, 400, at least 400 years earlier, said, this is what's going to happen. Then it happened. So Peter says, number one, prophecy has been fulfilled. Number two, Pentecost means that the last days have dawned. There were the beginning 
Genesis, right? The beginning of days. Then there were, uh, you know, the, the time of Israel. Then the time of the church. Uh, Peter says that with the inauguration of the Holy Spirit, the last days have come. That's point number two in his message. Point number three is Pentecost means that when the Holy Spirit indwells all people, that all people can be saved and all saved people have the ability to speak the message of salvation. We're going to cover that in a minute. And number four, Pentecost means that Jesus is the Messiah. It was an authentication that Jesus' words were real and he was stamped and verified. And so we're going to cover that. Our passage today covers the first sermon in the church age. It's like an inauguration speech. In our country, when the transfer of power happens, there's an inauguration speech, right? The president stands up and this is his first speech. At this particular transfer, Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit descended, and there is a sermon. First sermons are memorable. This is the first sermon of the early church. Um, I remember my first sermon. Uh, it was super memorable in not such a great way. Um, I, was, uh, I had just become a Christian at, uh, at around age 17. Um, and three or so years later, I went to a Bible school in Arkansas, and I got hired by a, a little church in Hot Springs, Arkansas, called Oaklawn Baptist Church. And um, on Super Bowl Sunday, 1994, the plan was this. We'll have a morning service, and then we'll have a, like a fellowship luncheon, and then the pastor brought in a, um, a, like a family worship band from out of state. They came in and they were just going to do a couple of songs. And then I was going to preach like a devotional, like a 30-minute kind of devotional, 20-minute message. And then 2 o'clock, you're out. You're going to go enjoy a Super Bowl day. And, uh, and so I was so nervous the whole week leading up. I'm, I'm trying to write. I'm trying to prepare. If you've ever had to give a speech, imagine trying to give a 30-minute speech from the Bible. And, uh, and at that time, this was my very first one, and I was consumed with it, and I was worried. I'd read everything I could, and I tried to put together an outline, and it was going to be terrible no matter what. There was no way uh, it was going to be good. All first sermons um, are, are not so great. Somehow through the process, I had written this dumb song to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies theme song about the book that I was preaching. I was preaching in Ruth. So I, didn't, I said, well, this is so dumb. I'm never going to use that. Um, sure enough, that Super Bowl Sunday came. We had our morning service, Sunday school morning service, fellowship lunch, and then the, the family came up and they, they, uh, they did one song. And so I was getting ready. I was getting my notes together. I'm sitting on the front here. And then they did a second song and they did a third song. And they did, instead of inviting me up after three songs, they did 14 songs. <laughs> and people were just... Past, I mean, it was so much after a full morning and a full lunch and then a full afternoon. And so I was expecting just that there's no way he's still going to want me to preach. After 14 songs, about two hours after lunch and all this, it's like five o'clock at this point, And he asked me to come up and deliver this message. And so sure enough, I can just see the crowd like, don't you dare. <laughs> I don't want to hear this, you know. And so just to get them back in, I thought, well, I've got that Beverly Hillbilly song. <laughs> So I sang this dumb song about, let me tell you a story about a man named Elimelech. You know, he had a family and it was so bad, I won't even repeat it. Uh, you're welcome. It was terrible, but it was memorable. Um, I'll never forget it. And I'm sure uh, they will never forget it either. Hopefully I've developed in uh, 30 years of ministry. And, um, and so this sermon that Peter preaches is much better than mine, but it's memorable uh, today. So let's read it together. 
Peter's first sermon from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, starting in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Just saying, listen up. Everybody, he's getting the crowd's attention. In verse 15, he says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's just the third hour. They had heard these crazy languages uh, and these Galileans speaking it. And so out of the crowd of thousands, some people mocked them and said, I don't know what this is, but it sounds like those guys had a long night and they're just uh, um, had been reveling all night. So uh, Peter just tells them they're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then he gives an explanation for what it is. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, right? So now he's pointing back to a prophet and the prophet Joel had written at least 400 years earlier. Some people say that Joel wrote in the 900s. Uh, some people say he wrote after the Babylonian exile, but at some point we can sort of narrow him down to after 586 uh, BC. So at least five to 600 years before Jesus was even born, uh, maybe as early as 400 years, Joel wrote this. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and, uh, servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. What's prophesy? Speaking the word of God. Right? Get it out of your mind that prophecy is only some sort of future prediction. Prophecy could just be declaring the word of God. In some definitions, you could say that what I'm doing to you right now is um, prophesying by teaching just scripture. It's not just a prediction of the future. So get that sort of Nostradamus image out of your head. Right? For those of you who might be thinking of that kind of a prophecy. Prophecy is simply declaring the word of God that you've received. So he's saying, verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter's giving an explanation of what happened. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pains of, death, uh, pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's a quote from David, uh, maybe a thousand years before. Just looking into the future, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David was thinking uh, forward to the time when the Messiah would come, and that's who he was talking about. So now Peter explains David's prophecy in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that 
the patriarch David, he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw that one of his descendants would be Jesus. He spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up from the dead, and of that we are all witnesses. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out, <clears throat> that he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, this is the climax of Peter's message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. The crowd responds, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart <clears throat> and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone with uh, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, we thank you for your word today. <clears throat> we thank you for the opportunity to read it, and we pray that you would open our ears so that we can understand it. Help us to know what you're saying here, and help us to apply it to our own lives today. Now bless the teaching of your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now we're going to look at it. We'll go back over it, and we're going to look at it briefly. Four points. Number one from Peter's sermon that I mentioned earlier, Pentecost means that prophecy has been fulfilled. So right away after this uh, event happens, after the Holy Spirit comes down and tongues of fire are divided, uh, and then the apostles and the disciples, they wander out into the temple complex area and they begin uh, speaking a language that they've never studied in the right tense, the right verb, the right inflection. They're proclaiming the works of God in a language that all the visitors to, um, to Jerusalem could not only hear but understand. And they kept saying, what is this? How can these Galileans? and speak this language. Peter immediately in this message explains it by saying, this is not something new. This is not something new. Now, last week I talked about <clears throat> sometimes people abuse the Holy Spirit and make him some chaotic, charismatic, <clears throat> Pentecostal uh, sort of um, um, caricature of, of, uh, of who God is in a way that um, distorts who the Bible says he is by doing all kinds of crazy things and then attributing it to the Holy Spirit. 
I had a run-in with a, a former Young Life leader, and, and he was describing what was taking place at that time in uh, places like Toronto and uh, places like, um, <clears throat> uh, I forget the name of the place, Pensacola in Florida, and a couple of other places where people would attribute to the Holy Spirit coming down on their crowd, and, um, and they would just begin barking like a dog and rolling around on the ground and shaking, and then there was a phenomena called what they called holy laughter. And they would say that these five, three, four, five hour services um, were uh, an activity of the Holy Spirit coming down and producing within them this sort of behavior. And so when I I said, I don't think that this is, um, I don't think that this should be attributed to the Holy Spirit. Uh, And I'll give you a couple reasons why I don't think that. I'm talking to my young wife later. I said, number one, this um, this is unprecedented. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the Holy Spirit coming on a group of people and doing these kinds of activities. What we do is when we give to the Holy Spirit some over-the-top behavior, we discount His amazing behavior that He does regularly. His work of convicting us of sin, very practical. His work of reminding us of all truth. His work of leading us giving us inspiration and direction and helping us in decision-making and knowing the will of God and knowing how to walk. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, you know from Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, dog barking, rolling around on the ground, holy laughter, shaking violently, right? None of those things are the fruit of the Spirit. So when we attribute to the Holy Spirit something that the Bible doesn't attribute to Him, it becomes idolatry. And so what I was pointing out to that particular Young Life leader is that what you're experiencing is new and it's not in Scripture. What Peter first did was he said, what you're seeing here is not new and it is in Scripture, Even from the very beginning, when Saul was chosen as the king, what happened to Saul? Saul got filled with the Spirit, and he began to speak and to prophesy. And people who knew Saul were like, why is that guy, is he among the prophets? This was not a new thing that they were experiencing. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon a person gives them insight, wisdom, discernment, and the ability to speak in such a way that they hadn't spoken before. And at Pentecost, it came out in real learned languages that could be understood by native speakers. Peter says, this was predicted over 400 years earlier by the prophet Joel in Joel 2, 28. Don't be suspicious if something new is happening for you today. If somebody comes to you and and tells you that that the Holy Spirit is doing something new here or there in some other way, and you don't see evidence of it in Scripture, and it's not consistent with the fruit of the Spirit or the activity of the Spirit, oftentimes it's to sensationalize a message. And we know that Jesus said in the last days uh, that people will come and they will even do signs to deceive even uh, the elect. Peter establishes this event not as a new thing, but as a predicted event. Pentecost is a fulfillment of prophecy. That's number one. Number two, Pentecost means that the last days have dawned. Look at verse 17a. Peter says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There is a redemptive timeline. 
right? We see in Genesis 1, the creation. Thank you, man. You can tell that my voice needed that. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> you could tell that um, uh, there, there was a redemptive timeline. And in the redemptive timeline, uh, there was the fall of man. And there was uh, the prediction that one would come. And he would stomp the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. And then there was uh, Genesis 12. There's the, the choosing of Abraham. And then um, the, the, uh, the calling of Isaac and the calling of Jacob and the patriarchs. And then the establishment of the nation Israel 430 years after they were enslaved in Egypt. All of those things were a part of a redemptive timeline or calculator unfolding as it were then when you get to Micah there's a 400 year silence toward the end of the Old Testament where for 400 years between Malachi um, not Micah, Malachi and Matthew there's a 400 year gap at least before John the Baptist came on the scene saying that the Messiah is here all of those things in the redemptive calendar were boxes to be checked and so when Peter says, hey, we're in the last days, it means that there's not many more boxes to check on the redemptive timeline. Pentecost means the last days have dawned. Look up, uh, turn your Bible over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Just a couple of books over. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 1st Corinthians, <clears throat> chapter 10, Paul is writing to the believers at Corinth, and he gives them this insight. He's describing all the things that took place in Old Testament Israel. He's describing all the things that I just described um, that all the fathers, they were under the cloud, they passed through the sea with Moses, they all ate the same spirit. He's going through all that, and then he gets to verse um, 11, and he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This is not the second to the last days. This is not the middle of days. Paul is telling the Corinthians that this is the end of days. Turn over to um, <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3, about eight books to your right. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now just tell me if this doesn't indicate our times. Paul says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That passage tells us, again, what is indicated by the last days. 
You get into Revelation, you see even more evidence about the last days. But the point that Peter is making is that the last days were inaugurated at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost means that the last days dawned when the coming of the Holy Spirit, meaning there's not much time left on the clock. World events are moving toward an inevitable end. And if you're looking at your prophetic timeline, Israel becoming a nation again in the 19, late 1940s, 1947, 1948, was a massive piece of the puzzle put back in there. Basically, the point is this. Don't neglect today. If we're living in the last days and you're, you're not guaranteed today, much less tomorrow, understand that the redemptive clock is winding down and we are in the last days. Jesus said, no one knows the day and the hour. So should the Lord tarry, it could be another 100 years. It could be another 200 years. It could be 20 days from now. Either way, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know that we're in the last days. That's what Pentecost inaugurated. Number three, Pentecost means that all people can be saved and that all saved persons can speak the message of salvation. Turn back to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see where we get that from the passage here. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 17, he says, and in the last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh so that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. <clears throat> Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And then it continues about these signs. Um, in 17b through 21 there, what does Joel mean that even the people would prophesy and dream dreams? It means that in the days of the Holy Spirit, in the former days, an Old Testament prophet, if anybody wanted to know God, an Old Testament prophet, God would reveal himself to that prophet through a dream or through a vision or through some experience. And so a person, um, if they wanted to know God, they would go to a prophet and that prophet would describe to them the word of God and the works of God based on the revelation of God that that prophet experienced. So now... With the coming of the Holy Spirit, no longer shall one man teach his neighbor, saying, No, God. Each one of us has the capacity to know God if we are in the Holy, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have just as much of an ability in Christ as I do to teach the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Each of us who have been saved can explain to somebody else how to be saved. Isn't that wonderful? See, Gibson, as a 16-year-old with uh, moral problems and alcohol problems and drug problems and, and all kinds of problems, as an atheistic kid who didn't really even believe in God, one night gets on my knees and cries out, God, if you're real, I need you to help me. I can't live like this anymore. And then um, a guy who knows the gospel is just in my neighborhood randomly going door to door, knocking on doors. So God, in his infinite sovereign wisdom, puts a guy who knows the gospel in the path of somebody who needs to know the gospel. And that guy knocked on my door and shared with me the good news of salvation. Why? Because he was appointed by a pope or a bishop or a pastor? No. He was just a regular guy, an HVAC guy, uh, just a regular guy with a regular job who knew the message of salvation, knew the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then went door to door sharing the message of salvation. That's what it means. 
Moses longed for this. In Exodus 18, Jethro said, um, Moses is his father-in-law, hey man, you're going to get worn out if you keep trying to navigate all the people and hear all their complaints and judge between them. What you need to do is you need to delegate authority. You need to um, get uh, judges of hundreds and judges of fifties and judges of tens, and you need to appoint to them the authority to judge between all these disputes, or you're going to get worn out. So Moses does that, and in Numbers chapter 11, Moses delegates the authority to the elders by the Lord's command. And the Lord said, bring them all in and I will take a portion of the spirit that I've given to you and I will distribute it among those 70 others. When he did that, um, two guys went outside of the tent and they started prophesying in the camp. And Joshua ran up to Moses and he said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, um, from his youth said, Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Would that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's the fulfillment of Numbers eleven twenty nine. Pentecost means that now you have the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus. You've repented of your sins and asked Jesus to save you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And Romans 8 says, his spirit ministers with your spirit, confirming that you know him. There is the evidence of the Holy Spirit within you, enabling you not just to understand the gospel, but now to be an ambassador of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You hear that? God reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus, and then he um, authorized you as an ambassador to go out and tell the message of salvation in Christ Jesus. Um, Pentecost means that you are filled with the Spirit, you have received the gospel of salvation, and now you can share the message of salvation. Finally, Peter's fourth point is, Pentecost means that Jesus is the Messiah. The king who died for sin was resurrected and then ascended to heaven and now is reigning on the throne. Pentecost, Peter shifts his attention. Look at verses 22 through 36. Peter shifts his attention from the Holy Spirit and from Joel and prophecy on to Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip down to verse 29. Brothers, I can say to you with confidence that David died and was buried. Um, but verse 32, um, this Jesus God raised up from the dead, and of that we are witnesses. Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What does the resurrection, I mean, Pentecost mean? It means that Jesus is who he says he is. You know, have you ever gone on social media and you see somebody with a blue check mark? Uh, it just means that they're verified. It means that that is who they say they are. Maybe it's a, a movie star or an athlete or a politician or somebody with some sort of clout. Um, if they have that blue check mark, it means that they are verified and authorized and who they say they are is who they really are. 
The coming of the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Messiah, the King who died for sins, was resurrected, and then ascended to heaven, and is now reigning on the throne. You see, everything had the potential to unravel. Jesus left, and when Jesus left, you have the hands of the church, the future church, um, in the, the hands of these 12 guys, these 12 fishermen from Galilee and these others. But, but Jesus was verified because what he predicted what would happen and the promise of the Holy Spirit coming, all that pointed to the fact that his words are true and verified. So let's look at the results of Peter's sermon. And by the way, this isn't probably all of Peter's sermon. This is Luke's um, overview of Peter's sermon, right? It says, with many other words in verse 40, with many other words, Peter encouraged them. This is Luke the doctor and historian looking back and revising and rewriting what, uh, what Peter had said uh, or summarizing it for us. But it comes to this point of what are the results? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We read earlier in Joel's prophecy in verse 21, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is basically telling the crowd, be saved. You can be saved. And the results of Pentecost were the gospel message, repent and believe in Jesus. Did you know that if you are not yet in Christ, if you are not yet a believer, the greatest need you have today is the forgiveness of sins. The greatest need you have is the forgiveness of sins. You might say, no, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. What I need is the um, money. What I need is a restored relationship. What I need is um, a job. Or what I need is deliverance. Or what I need is a bigger house. Or what I need is a better car. You might have a long list of things that you want God to do for you. But the one thing that you need is maybe the thing that you're not asking Jesus for. Do you remember the story? All the time when Jesus was healing somebody, often in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of times Jesus, somebody would come to him and they would present their need to him, and Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Right? Do you remember that? It kind of makes you do a double take. Remember particularly the story of the paralytic whose friends carry this paralytic on a mat, a paralyzed person, and then they can't get to Jesus because the house is crowded, so they, they go up on top of the roof, do you remember? And they start tearing the tiles out, and Jesus is teaching, and it's like the ceiling were falling in here, and then they lower this person down, and, um, and when they lower him down, um, Jesus looks at the person and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders look at this and they say, why does this guy talk like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing that, says to them, <clears throat> just so that you know I have the authority to forgive sins, let me also heal this person <clears throat> as a sign to you that I have the authority to heal him. <clears throat> and so he heals the guy and then forgives him and his sins are forgiven. Your greatest need before God is the forgiveness of sins. And you can't get that by working harder you can't get that by being good enough. You can't get that by being moral. There's nothing you can do to please God in and of yourself. You need Jesus. You, the gospel says <clears throat> your greatest need was met 
on the cross. That God loved you so much that he met that need by sacrificing his only son to die for you. That's the message of salvation's salvation. Your sins can be forgiven by placing your trust in Jesus. And Peter tells him, repent and believe. This is the gospel message. Repent and believe. Repent meaning stop sinning and turn to God in confession and ask Jesus to save you. Well, the results, 3,000 people responded and they were baptized and they were added to the church. And Peter's message here is so unique. Uh, my first sermon, not so unique, well, unique in some ways with the Beverly Hillbilly song and all that, but, but, but Peter's message was unique in a different way. Let me suggest four reasons. The source of his message came directly from the Holy Spirit. I, I wrote down every word I'm going to say today, and, and I need that. I, I rely on a script. Um, I think about it. I don't want to teach you wrongly. I, there are times when there's something I say that's not in my notes, and I trust that it's helpful. But, but Peter's source on the spot, he hadn't studied all week the prophecies of Joel and read Psalm 110. He didn't write, he didn't pull out a scroll that he had written beforehand. And the Holy Spirit indwelt him to a point where he was able to spontaneously stand up and from memory recite passages of Joel and passages of Psalm 110. And Peter's message is unique because it's evidence that the Holy Spirit speaks through people. The source of his message makes it unique. Number two, the speaker. The speaker, Peter himself. Listen, remember 50 days ago, 53 days ago, Peter, Jesus had been arrested on on the night of the Passover. And and what did Peter do? He totally even denied that he knew Jesus. I don't know that guy. Oh, but you must have been with him. Your voice, your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. Peter said, I don't know who that guy is. I have no idea who he is. Peter denied Jesus three times. That's a complete failure, people. Peter absolutely, completely failed. And so for 53 days later, for him to stand up and to give the inaugural message gives you this idea. No failure is final. If you feel like you blew it, you, you made a complete wreck of your life or you made a complete wreck of your walk with Christ or, or you blew it like Peter did, this is a message of redemption. Just seven weeks later, Peter stands up and thousands and thousands of people, 3,000 of them um, are redeemed and saved. God uses him and he has a long, fruitful life of ministry with ups and downs. He failed again in the future. In the early church, uh, he refused to eat with Gentiles and then he was rebuked and Paul said, I rebuked him to his face because he was clearly wrong to exercise this sort of racism within the congregation. Peter had his ups and downs, just like you and I are going to have our ups or downs. But listen, no failure is final. You can be restored and redeemed. From that same book of Joel, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, destroyer, cutter, and the great army which I sent among you. What does that mean? In judgment, God sent an army of locusts to destroy Israel, and then he relented and said, I can restore what was broken. God can restore you. Peter is proof of that. The results of the message, 3,000 people from around the world were saved and added. That's the third distinctive about Peter's message. The church grew from 120 to 3,120 in the first morning of the church's existence. And then a final um, unique point about Peter's sermon is it established the church forever. The church was completely established forever. If anyone thought that Jesus' influence would have dissipated after his death and then 
his resurrection and then his ascension. And they thought, now these 12 guys are going to lead us? If anyone thought that Jesus' influence would dissipate and that the church is doomed, listen, the events of Pentecost shatter that notion completely. 3,000 people from all around the world put their faith in Christ and then went back out into the world to establish places where the gospel would eventually take root. So what can you do in response to this? Let me just give you a suggested couple of things. If you're not yet in Christ, take this away. The gospel, the good news of salvation is available to you today. You can be saved. The forgiveness of sins is available to you as long as there is breath in your lungs, as long as there is a heartbeat, as long as there is a brain function, as long as you have capacity over your will to give it over to Christ Jesus, to believe in him and to trust him with your life, you can experience new life and forgiveness of sins. When, Paul, when Peter said that we are in the last days, just know that when Hebrews says today is the day of salvation, it means that today is the day of salvation. You can be saved today. The, the biblical message is simple to understand. It is to repent, to turn of your sins, and to place your faith in Jesus, asking for, uh, for him to forgive you and to be the Lord of your life. That is available to you today. Another point of application might be that if you are a believer in Christ, you have received the message of salvation, now you are an ambassador of that message. It's your role as a person filled with the Holy Spirit not to get distracted from your mission, not to think that your life is meant for making money or for building up some business or for building up a nice home. Your life represents a missional activity that the moment you're dead will forever be lost, that missional activity. There will be no evangelism in heaven. We will not be sharing the gospel with the lost for, for the hope that they'll be saved. If you're in Christ, you are an ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5, carrying the message of reconciliation. How are you doing in that? How are you doing in living on mission? Can you point to... Any person in the last year that is here today in Christ because of your influence in their life? Is there a single person that you've led to faith in Christ or shared the gospel with or helped see them become a baptized believer because of your influence in their life? That's the challenge for Christ followers is that we have been committed the message of reconciliation as ambassadors to go out and declare salvation in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to, uh, to think about and to walk through Peter's sermon. I pray that you would uh, apply this message to our hearts today, that you might give us wisdom in how we should leave here uh, today. I pray that you would take your word and use it to change us and to make us more and more like you in Christ Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.